Hello, and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They mainly tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth discussion of the films that I love. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. Today, I'm talking about Ingmar Bergman's 1951 film, Summer Interlude. 2018 marks 100 years since the birth of Ingmar Bergman. He was born on July 14, 1918. To celebrate this monumental anniversary, I'm dedicating several episodes to Bergman's work and to my favorite films by him. Summer Interlude is not one of his most well-known films, but it is one that I personally connect to and that really resonates with me. I talk about why I think this film is so powerful, why it moves me, and why it has really stayed with me for years, ever since I saw it a few years ago. I talk about loss. I talk about how memory and the past can be very powerful in our lives. I talk about how we can build up walls to try to keep pain out the way the main character in the film does. I talk about all this and more and I share my own personal experiences of loss and just things that make this film so powerful for me and so unforgettable. So I hope that you'll stick around and listen to the full episode, and I hope that you'll find something valuable in it. Her Head and Films has a Patreon where you can financially support the podcast on a monthly basis, and you can access all kinds of rewards and extras. You can find more information at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash herheadandfilms. At one level, you get a shout out on each episode. So I'd love to give a shout out to my wonderful patrons, Juan, Iris, Teal, JD, Vanessa, Spunden, Polina, Olivia, Carolyn, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, and Lindsay. Thank you all so much for being patrons. You make the podcast possible, and I'm grateful for all of you. And I'm grateful for every person that listens to this podcast and enjoys it. If financial support is not an option for you, and I totally understand if it isn't, please consider reviewing the podcast on iTunes. If you write a review, I will read it on an episode. And I have a recent review that was left, and I'd love to read it to you. It was left by Feminist Popcorn. And that is a new film podcast that focuses on women and film and women's stories in cinema. I really love the podcast. It's one of my favorite film podcasts. So check out Feminist Popcorn if you're interested. And the review that they left reads, quote, Caitlin is a born storyteller with impeccable taste in art house cinema. She wears her heart on her sleeve and draws you into her personal relationship with each of the movies she discusses. Movies aren't just entertainment to her. They are the bread and butter of life. I love to listen to her head in films as I fall asleep. Her soft, twangy voice is like the best ASMR meets your favorite public radio host. Come for great movie recommendations, but stay for the host herself, unquote. Thank you so much for that wonderful review, Feminist Popcorn. 
I am so appreciative of it. If you don't listen to the podcast on iTunes or you're just not interested in leaving a review, other things that you could do are to tell your friends and followers about Her Head and Films or you could follow and engage with me on social media. I love getting positive messages and comments from those of you who engage with me. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Head and Films. Just search for me and I will pop up. And you can see all my social media accounts listed in the show notes of each episode. So let's talk about Ingmar Bergman's summer interlude. I can't wait to share all of my thoughts with you. marks 100 years since Ingmar Bergman's birth. He was born on July 14, 1918. So 2018 has been a really important year, a monumental year, and there's been all kinds of different ways that people have been celebrating Bergman. And so I really couldn't let the year pass without sharing my own love for Ingmar Bergman. Because he's been a really important director for me. In 2011, that is the time when I trace my beginning, um, my awakening as a cinephile, as someone who fell in love with European art house cinema. And art house cinema in general, really. I watched Francois Truffaut, Chris Marker, Agnes Varda, Jean-Luc Godard. And I watched Ingmar Bergman and Krzysztof Koslowski. He's a Polish director, my favorite director. Um, But Ingmar Bergman was very important to my own awakening as a cinephile. I watched so many of his films starting in 2011. But it's actually been quite a few years since I've dug into his work. In 2017, I did watch Fanny and Alexander. Um, but that was the first time I had seen a Bergman film in years. And there are so many films that I could talk about. I've seen over a dozen of his films, and he has he directed dozens of films. He was a prolific creator. But I have a few that I hold close to my heart, and a few that I just find really compelling. And they don't tend to be his most famous films or his greatest known films. But there is something in them that I personally connect to. And of course, that's what this podcast is about. It's about my subjective experience of cinema. And that's what I bring you in each episode. I chose to talk about Summer Interlude for a number of reasons. And I want to talk about them for a minute. I didn't originally plan to talk about this film. I had other uh, films in mind as I was trying to make sort of a short list of what I wanted to cover, what I wanted to explore. But one day, a scene from this film hit me like a lightning bolt. And I know that's a cliche. I was in my bedroom 
and it just came to me, and I remembered watching Summer Interlude. I saw it in 2014, so four years ago now, and it came back to me suddenly. It wasn't something that I expected, and when it comes to the podcast, I'm very intuitive about the films that I cover. Sometimes I have them scheduled. I have an idea. I've been wanting to do the Bergman thing for months now. I knew I was going to do it in July. That's when I'm recording these episodes. Of course, people will listen to them in the future, beyond whenever I record them, obviously. So I've been, I've known for a few months I'm going to do this. I'm going to dedicate a month to Ingmar Bergman and do several episodes about his films. But Summer Interlude was not on the short list. It, it was not what I had thought about. But suddenly I thought of it. And I thought, I have to talk about this film. Because there's, and I realized that there was so much there that I could talk about. This is one of Bergman's earlier films. But it is a film that was very formative for him and I'll talk about that in a moment um, when he, I have some quotes and things of things that he has said about Summer Interlude. This was a very formative film. It really was the film, I think, in which he came into his own as a director. And, you know, I'm not a Bergman encyclopedia. And this podcast is not here to um, give you every factoid about Ingmar Bergman. Um I'm not interested in doing that because you can easily go to his Wikipedia page and do that, right? That's not what I'm trying to give you. I'm not giving you a Wikipedia page, like a set of facts. When he was born, when he died, this, this happened in his childhood, and then this happened, and blah, blah, blah. I'm giving you my personal experience of his films and why certain ones matter to me in a very deep way. And Summer Interlude, it has that personal aspect for me. So when it came back to me in that way, I said, I have to cover this film. And I listened to that voice and I listened to my intuition and my gut about it. And I'm glad that I did because rewatching it, it's, it is such a beautiful film and, um, if you haven't seen it, I urge you to see it. I will talk about the plot. I will talk about things that happen in it. So there will be spoilers. If you don't mind, then keep listening. If you do mind, go find it. I watched it on Filmstruck. I'm sure it's available to rent out there. So um, this film, I, I wanted to con- I want to communicate to you how um, how I chose it. Because it was not something that I originally was going to talk about. But certain scenes came back to me. And I remembered certain themes in the film. And I realized that they were actually very resonant for my own life right now. And what I go through. And what I've been going through. And things that I struggle with. And so that's why I wanted to talk about it. Because it's a film about grief. It's a film about loss. It's a film about loss of innocence about looking back on your youth and and mourning it and realizing that it's over and that's something that I'm 28 right now I'm about to turn 29 
I love that me and Ingmar have birthdays that are very close together. He was born July 14th. My birthday is July 20th. So we're only six days apart. I love that. And our character in this film, Marie, is around 28. And she's looking back on a moment, a time in her life that was very formative for her. But she's also mourning it and I think feeling the grief of it. And so there's like a lot there that maybe if I was 25 or 24, that maybe I wouldn't talk about the film. That there's parallels between this film and my own life and my own experiences and my own feelings that I have to talk about. So that's why I chose Summer Interlude. I don't think it's his more famous film. I wouldn't categorize it that way. I mean, when you think of Ingmar Bergman, I think you think of Persona and The Seventh Seal and Through a Glass Darkly. I think those are the films that you think about, really. I don't know if people bring up Summer Interlude. It's like this little gem, I think. Um, So that's why I wanted to talk about it. So I want to explore a little bit... um, how the film came to be, how the concept came to be. And then I'll just give you my thoughts and feelings and analysis of the film, as I always do. Um, I've been reading a book called Images, My Life in Film, and it's by Ingmar Bergman. And in the book, he talks about really almost all his films and how they came to be and what inspired him and he shares um, like his notebooks and, and quotes from his notebooks as he was filming the, the, the films. And so he talks about how Summer Interlude actually came out of a love affair that he had when he was 16 years old. And it was when he and his family were on Orno Island, he says. And so he fell in love with this girl. And she was also alone like him. And the two of them fell in love. They, he says, um, you know, two lonely people, two young lonely people seek each other out. That's how he describes it. He says that she lived with her parents in a large, strangely unfinished house. He also says, quote, our love died when autumn came. But it served as the basis for a short story that I wrote the summer after my exams. And so he eventually decided to flesh all of that out, he says, and put it into a movie script. He says that the film was made in Stockholm's Outer Archipelago. He loved, he says, quote, the special mixture of tempered countryside and wilderness, which played an important part in the different time schemes. In the luminescence of summer and in the autumnal twilight. Unquote. And he talks about the really extraordinary performance by by my Britt Nielsen. And I do think she gives a stunning performance in this film. And he says, um, quote, A touch of genuine tenderness is achieved through my Britt Nielsen's performance. 
The camera catches her with an affection that is easy to comprehend. She embraced the girl's story and lifted it higher with her brilliant mixture of playfulness and seriousness. The filming became one of my happy experiences, unquote. So making this film was a great experience for Bergman. And that's not always the case with his films. You know, some shoots were obviously more grueling than others. And I totally agree with what he says about Nielsen. She had to play a teenage girl. And then she also had to play an adult woman. Because this is about a woman going into her mind, going into her memories, and thinking about something that happened when she was 15 or 16 years old. And that's another thing that I love about the film. And I am attracted to Bergman's films that are about women. A lot of his films are about women. And I'm really compelled by the way that he represents women. And I have to say I was really impressed with the representation of Marie in the film. That he gives, he really makes her feel like a teenager. To me, he did not sexualize her or objectify her she feels like a fully formed fleshed out multi-dimensional character with so many different emotions and so many different facets to who she was and I loved that I mean I think it could have easily gone into a sexualized territory but he didn't do that and I really respect him for that I'm not saying his portrayals of women are perfect but in Summer Interlude, I think we have really an authentic teenage girl that she's playful and carefree and there's so much to her though. And she's very, um, when she's older as the adult, Nielsen is able to bring a sense of gravity and seriousness to the character. And she just does that really beautifully. And then I also have a little bit more information about the film that I got from in, from this website that's a treasure trove. And it's really a go-to source for all things about Ingmar Bergman. And it's ingmarbergman.se. And all of these um, sources will be put in the description of the episode if you want to explore them more yourself. But there's a great article about Summer Interlude. And even though he says that the filming was a happy experience for him, this was actually sort of a time of turmoil for Bergman a bit because the article on this website tells us that in 1949, Bergman had left his wife and children and he'd gone to Paris with a lover who then became pregnant. Um, he got divorced and he married Gunn Hagberg Um so actually it's it's interesting that the filming of the of the movie went really well but it seems like the script itself it came from a time of a bit more turmoil for him and his personal life was always a bit of a mess right um Bergman was a very complicated person you know and the cinematographer for the film was Gunnar Fisher and he does like a really spectacular job. The article says that Fisher, quote, had to mobilize all his talents to cope with the changing light conditions. The result was dazzling. One Swedish reviewer thought that Fisher's camera work was worth all the bouquets in the world. Bravo, bravo, bravo. 
and a French review by the budding film director Jean-Luc Godard declared that Summer Interlude was the world's most beautiful film. The principal role of Marie was played by Mai Britt Nilsson, one of the most prominent Swedish, Swedish film stars of the 1950s, unquote, which I didn't know. I, I don't think I've seen Nilsson in anything else, but I haven't watched a ton of Swedish films. I've really only seen Ingmar Bergman's films, honestly. I haven't explored enough of Swedish cinema beyond him, really. So I think that's really interesting about Godard. I, you know, if you've listened to a few episodes, I have a complicated relationship with Godard. Um, But I have to say, I felt uh, very validated to hear that he thinks that this is like one of the most beautiful films ever made, because I tend to agree. I think it's one of the most beautiful films by Bergman especially, if not the most beautiful. I mean, it is visually stunning. It, it really is visually gorgeous. And um, it, it, it will stay with you. It's, it, I think it has to do with the ballet performances. And I'm a sucker for that. Like, I, I watch ballet films. I, I love them. One of my favorite films is The Red Shoes, uh, which is just extraordinary and I would love to talk about the red shoes one day um I I I remember when I went through this very intense obsession with the ballet russe uh and um you know Nijinsky and and Diaghilev and all of that and I was watching all kinds of documentaries about the ballet russe um I love Black Swan by Darren Aronofsky you can hate me all you want, but I love that film. <laughs> and um, so I, I, if, if a film is about ballet, I'm probably going to watch it. It's just that simple. <clears throat> I, I just love it. I, I really do. So that attracted me to the film, I think, originally. I like films about dance. I, I watch a lot of dance documentaries and dance films, even if it's not ballet. Because there's just the thing I, I love... I love these films because, um, because I love to, to watch dancers. And I mean, I just watched a a film about dance called Blood Wedding, which is by Carlos Sora. I don't know if I'm saying it right. I, I didn't mean, I didn't plan on mentioning the film, so I didn't look up how to pronounce his name. But he does these really great documentaries about dance. I think he did one about flamenco. He did one about the Portuguese uh, sing musical genre of fado, um, or fado. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Um, which I love. I, I love fado music. Um, and that included some dancing, I think. But I know he's done flamenco. I know he's done like a whole series on dance. And he did one called Blood Wedding from, I think it was from 1981. And it showed, um, it showed a group rehearsing for, um, for a dance thing. And yeah, it was really good. It was really powerful to watch it. Um, so I just watched that like the other night. I'm always watching dance films. Um, I did an episode about a dance film called The Tango Lesson by Sally Potter and I'll link to that in the description so I'm I'm obsessed with these films about dance and so this kind of fits into that a little bit 
I mean, dance doesn't dominate the film. It doesn't define the film necessarily. But it really brings a certain level of refinement and, and beauty to the film. And that Ingmar Bergman.se article says that the reviews for the film were very positive. Um, and says that Summer Interlude was, quote, Bergman's first critis- critical success as a film director. So, and they also quote Bergman as saying this about the film, and this is the last thing I'll talk about before I get into my analysis. But I want to give a sense of how formative this film was for him, and how it, it really, it was an achievement for him. I think it was the first film of his that got really great critical feedback, and where he really came into his own as a director. I mean, that's just my opinion, but I'm not a Bergman expert by any means, but this is just what I've read, that it seems like Summer Interlude was just a really important film in his career. And so the article quotes him as saying, For me, Summer Interlude is one of my most important films. Even though to an outsider it may seem terribly passé, for me it isn't. This was my first film in which I felt I was functioning independently, with a style of my own, making a film all my own, with a particular appearance of its own, which no one could ape. It was like no other film. Unquote. So for Bergman himself, when he looked back on his life as a director, Summer Interlude was an important milestone for him. And so I, I think it's important to acknowledge that. I really do. So now I really want to dig into this film. I want to talk about why I love it so much and, and why I think it's important. There are so many important themes um, about this film. It's about the past and memory loss and grief, loss of innocence, first love. Um, so that's, that's a, those are really important themes that I'll be digging into as I talk about it. And I just, I'm really glad to be talking about Berkman again, because I, I left him for so many years. I was, I was exploring other directors, you know, and I just kind of lost Bergman at some point. I think when you watch more than a dozen films by a certain director, I'm not going to say you get tired of them. I would never say that I'm tired of Bergman, but I think you maybe get full. You know, you feel like, well, I've had a lot of this particular director. I'm going to move on and and explore some other people. I kind of did that with Louis Malle too. Like, when I was at the beginning with Art House Cinema, I watched a lot of Louis Mao. Like, The Lovers, Elevator to the Gallows, The Fire Within, uh, Au Revoir Les Enfants. You know, like, I was watching so much Louis Mao. Um, and I haven't watched him in years. You know, it's it's like there are these certain directors that I just obsessively watched. And then I just abandoned them and went on to other things. Um but I'm really glad to be returning to Bergman because I get that same jolt in me. And I remember like, oh my gosh, you know, this is why I fell in love with his work. And Summer Interlude was everything that I remembered and more because now I can bring a bit more experience to it. And my life has changed in in drastic ways since 2014. 
so I can see it with almost a second pair of eyes or a fresh set of eyes. I think when we revisit films, every revisit, every time we rewatch it, it's like we're a different person. And so I think our relationship with the film changes over time because there there are films that you watch and you know, I'm never going to watch this film again. I will never watch it again. And then there are films you watch and you you think, I have to see this again. Or there are certain directors where you enjoy going back to their work, whether it's Varda or Tarkovsky or Bergman or Antonioni um, or Rosalini. There are just certain directors that I love going back to. And that's the thing about classic films. That's the thing about classic art houses that you know these are films that you want to watch again and that you will watch again. And I think that is the thing with Bergman. You know, you can go back to his films over and over again. And that's what I'm doing. I'm revisiting certain ones as I celebrate his life and his work. And I just felt as I was watching Summer Interlude, the way it was written, the way it was plotted, because he wrote, you know, he wrote all his films. And you think about what a deep well he was and how he was able he was able to just constantly find these stories within himself. I mean, he was an incredibly imaginative person and such an amazing writer. I mean, the dialogue at times in this film, certain scenes, it's just, God, it's just, when you encounter a film like this, when you encounter the masters, it just puts everybody else to shame. I mean, you feel like you have just seen something that is so beautifully put together and so perfect and so inevitable. Um, he just, he, I feel like he was very gifted personally. I do love him. I shamelessly love him. I'm not going to apologize for it ever. I think there is this, and I think there's this idea that his work is very heavy and very serious. And it is, it's about mental illness. It's about, um, you know, dysfunction. It's, it's about alienation and loneliness and death and godlessness and, you know, all these existential, um, things that are just so intense, right? Um, and disconnection and the inability to communicate and, you know, everything is in his work for me personally. I think there's just everything there. He taps into something. He taps into something very deep and primal. And I think he taps into so many emotions, really, he had like his finger on the pulse or something as as they would say but it's hard to quite explain the power of his work and rewatching summer interlude i just felt like his films are still vital i mean they're made decades and decades ago but they still feel so relevant and they don't feel dated they i mean summer interlude doesn't it just feels like this perfect um piece of work and this piece of art um and and that's why I love it and partly why I wanted to watch the film too is that I'm reading this really great book and it's called The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley and I don't know if it's a book that a lot of people know about but it's about this it's set during a really hot summer in 
the year 1900. And um, it's about this young boy who is visiting a friend of his who's actually very wealthy and has a lot of money, whereas this little boy doesn't. I think he's 13, I want to say. These boys are 13. But he starts to become the go-between. Um, between he starts to take messages between his friend's sister and the sister's lover really she's like a teenager I think and um, so it's his friend's older sister and she's really not supposed to be with this this guy he's not in her class he's on a lower class and I'm I'm not doing the book justice at all. I'm not explaining it all that well. But um but it's really about this boy who becomes entangled in adult things that he's not ready for. Because he's only thirteen and this this girl and this guy are older than him and they're having a love affair and he's sending messages between the two of them when he shouldn't be, because this is an illicit relationship that shouldn't be happening. And he doesn't fully understand it. I'm only halfway through the book. Um, I don't know what happens exactly. Um, but it's it's about him older looking back on that summer when he was 13. And about how that summer changed his life. And how it haunts him what happened. So I'm extremely fascinated by stories and compelled by stories that are about characters who are thinking back to their childhood from an older vantage point where they're thinking back to a traumatic experience or a formative and intense experience that haunts them and that they can't get out of their system or they can't let go of and it shaped them in profound ways Because I think our childhoods and our teenage years are incredibly powerful, incredibly overwhelming in the way that they create us, really, and produce us in a lot of ways. And so Summer Interlude appealed to me on that level, too, that it's about our our main character, Marie, and how she's looking back at something that happened to her. And something that she can't let go of. So much of that summer defines her. Because she's thinking back 13 years. She's 28 and she's thinking back to when she was 15 or 16. And and it's so evocative, the summertime. I mean, the go-between is set during the summertime. And obviously, Summer Interlude is set during that season, too. And I think it's so interesting that Berkman set it during that season. It's a very evocative season. And there is so much that I think comes along with it. There are so many associations that we have with Summer. You know, it's this transient time, it's sultry, it's sensuous. And when you think of interval, you know, the word itself is about like a pause. You know, it's this brief space, this brief brief time in one's life, um, the summertime. And we associate it with romance and desire and with the body. 
you know, because the body is exposed and stripped. You know, people are usually in swimsuits and not wearing a lot of clothes because it's so hot. So that adds the sensuous and sensual dimension to it. But what Bergman does with this is that I think he sort of subverts our expectations that, oh, this is going to be a light, frothy summer romance, you know. And I think a bit about my episode that I did about David Lean's film Summertime, which is about Katherine Hepburn. And she's actually an unmarried woman. I guess they would call him a spinster, you know, in her 40s who goes to Italy on a vacation and meets this man. And there's something about the summer. It's almost like we almost are not ourselves in some way. But it has these connotations, I think, of beauty and, and sensuality and but Bergman, in his Bergman style, brings death into this. You know, he brings death into this world and into this um, time of innocence and beauty. And, and he, he takes that away to, uh, in, to a certain extent and says that and really shows us... Um, an experience for a young woman that is both beautiful and frightening and traumatic. I mean, that's what it is. I think Marie goes through a trauma in this film. But, um, so let's talk a bit about what happens in this film. I'm, I'm, I'm being very abstract. Um, but Marie is a ballet dancer and she's 28, 29 years old. She's rehearsing for an upcoming play and she receives a package in the mail. And it's the diary of a young man that she used to know, Henrik. And 13 years ago, him and her had had a love affair during the summer. So she's immediately taken back in her mind to her memories and to what happened to Henrik, which is that he died. He, he dies in the film. And so she's thinking back to the time that they spent together before his death. And she's thinking about what his death did to her and how it shaped her in really profound and consequential ways. Because this was her first love. And up to that point, her only love. Because in those 13 years, she has really struggled to live again. And it's interesting for me to talk about this film I mean, those of you who are listening, you don't care about the order of the episodes. That's not how most people are going to listen to the podcast. You might just have randomly found this episode and you haven't listened to any of the other episodes. But for me, it's consequential to talk about the to talk about the order, to talk about how certain episodes interconnect with each other and come in a certain order. So before this episode, I talked about a 2004 film called Birth, and it's directed by Jonathan Glazer. And that film was defined by a season, but not summer. It was really defined by winter. And so it's interesting to think about the differences in the two films. But the thing that I think is sort of similar between them is that in that film, Birth, there's a woman named Anna, and she's a widow. And she's struggling with her grief over the death of her husband. And it's been 10 years since he's died. 
and a little boy comes to her who's 10 and says that he is the reincarnation of her dead husband. And so it's about how she reacts to that little boy and what happens and the way it turns her life upside down. But so it's really interesting for me to have talked about that film and personally doing that episode almost unraveled me more than I expected it to. Because it's one of those films, it's like a a potent, powerful film for me that just is under my skin. And the fallout from that episode was really tough for me because watching the film took me back in time. It took me back into my memories and my grief because I've really struggled with grief. Um, my father died when I was 16 years old and it happened in 2006 and this year was the 12th anniversary of it. And so watching birth again, it just took me back because I saw the film in 2004 before he died. And so I just had a lot of memories and I don't know, just a lot of things came to the surface for me with that film. It was almost like it unleashed something and I'm still struggling with it. And so Summer Interlude, I relate to Summer Interlude on that level as well. As someone who struggles with grief the way that Marie does in the film. Because it's been 13 years since Henrik died. And she is still struggling with it. And she's still haunted by it. And she can't move past it, you know. But I do think that there's hope for Marie at the end of this film, whereas with, at the end of Birth, there is no hope. I mean, I did not see any hope for Anna, for that character. But I see it in Summer Interlude. I see in Marie the possibility that she could live again, that she could find love again. And that's a really beautiful aspect of the film, I think. Um, so... So again, it's interesting to come back to this film. You know, it's been 12 years since my father died. It, in the film, it's 13 years since Henrik has died. And and I'm 28 and Marie is 28. And she's thinking back to her childhood. She's mourning her lost youth. And I feel like because my father died when I was 16, it was so cataclysmic and it absolutely defined and, and shaped me in really deep and lasting ways. Those wounds and those scars. I am the product of that trauma. I'm the product of that loss and what it did to me. And I feel like I didn't really get to be young. I didn't really get to have a youth that when he died, I lost all of that. It was a loss of innocence and I just often feel like my life was over before it had be before it had begun and that I've always felt so old like I've never felt young I've always been old to some extent because of just different things but especially losing him when I was 16 so I, I relate to Marie in a lot of ways that she is still haunted by this thing and when she sees Henrik's diary, she is just immediately overwhelmed by it. And she she drops the book like she can't even touch it. It's like it's a piece of hot coal. It's like this fire that she can't even touch. And her face is just full of this, this torment. 
And, um, but even though there is this emotional pain, it's an interesting contrast in the film because the film itself is so visually beautiful. You know, as Godard said, it's one of, I mean, I think at the time he said it was the most beautiful film ever made. Um, I don't know if he would still say that now. Who knows what Godard would say now, right? Um, (laughs) God, Uh, he just bothers me. I can't explain it. If you've seen Faces Places by Agnes Varda, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) I won't spoil it for you. But this film is beautiful. I wanted to like take screenshots of every scene, especially the moments uh, um, that capture the ballet scenes. You know, in the ballet, it's just so stunning. Uh, The women in their beautiful costumes and their makeup and... um, it really, I really think that Bergman outdid himself. And I think he captured ballet in a way that is sort of difficult. And it's the way the Red Shoes sort of did it too. Like, it's hard to capture dance on film. It's not easy. Because dance is very different from, you know, when you go to see a a dance thing at a theater, it's very different than going to see a film. It's like, how do you, it's like... It's like you can't even like transfer the theater to film. It's very difficult. But I think Bergman was able to really bring that to life and make it really uh, gorgeous. But as a ballet dancer, Marie's getting pretty old. <laughs> you know, she's in her late 20s. She's around 28 or 29, I would say. I don't think we get her exact age. But um, she just, you, there's this heaviness about Marie in this film when she's older it stands in really stark contrast to when she's remembering that summer and during that summer she's so happy she's so bubbly and outgoing and older marie is very different from that there's there's a burden on her there's a pain about her um and you can feel it there's a seriousness to her that is not there when she's with Henrik and when he is alive. And this diary is really a catalyst for her to go back in time and to think about that summer. And I really love this visual thing that Bergman did where as she's flipping through the pages of the diary, you see um, Henrik's face superimposed on the pages. I thought that was really brilliant. I really did. Um, and when I talk about this heaviness about, um, Marie, at one point there's this man or whatever that says that there's something hard about her. That's the way he describes her. He has some kind of like tiff with her and he is sort of mad at her. And he says that there's something hard about her. And there is, there's this hardness about Marie. Like she has really hardened herself. And that's something that I also relate to is when you go through pain and you go through trauma and you have bad experiences with people and you get hurt by a lot of people over and over and over again. And when the world is just not kind to you and life is not kind to you and you go through a lot of trauma and you go through a lot of pain, I think it's really hard as you get older 
to hold on to your softness and your tenderness. And I try hard to do that. But I do notice that as I've gotten older, I really have gotten bitter. I really have gotten angry. And there has been a hardening that has happened to me. It sort of reminds me when I used to take pottery. I took pottery when I was in high school. I was terrible at it. It was so hard. It's much harder than it looks. But it it's so fascinating when you go from this soft substance. You know, if you make a vase or you make um, a coffee mug or whatever. All of my stuff looked terrible. But you go from this soft clay material and then you put it in an oven. And it becomes rock hard. And... That's almost like what happens to you, I think, is when you go through the kind of loss that Marie goes through, the kind of loss that I went through, you harden yourself. You know, you go from that soft consistency to something much more um, durable, I guess, Um something hard and brittle but at the same time you're still breakable you know if you drop a mug it's gonna break no matter what material it's made out of I guess if it's made out of plastic it won't obviously but if it is made out of that clay or porcelain or whatever it's going to break so even though you're made of that hard material and you're getting harder it you're you're still able to be broken that never changes and that's what's so painful is you're always capable of being hurt and wounded and broken but I think Marie tries to protect herself from that or she that's what she has tried to do since the death of Henrik she is not married she doesn't have children um, she has a boyfriend named David he works um, at a newspaper he's like a journalist or a reporter um, But in a lot of ways, her life is sort of frozen, you know, because of the grief, because of the pain, but also because of her inability to face it. That's a big part of this film is that she refused to actually deal with it or face it. And it seems like once she gets this diary, this is really the first time that she has engaged with it and thought about it and confronted what happened that summer 13 years ago and so older marie goes to this empty rundown cabin you can tell that it's been uninhabited for a long time and she goes back those 13 years she goes back to another ballet performance that she had done and so she was already a ballet dancer when she was 15 or 16 And we see her dancing then, and she's so bubbly and full of life. And um, after that particular performance, that's when she meets Henrik. And um, at first, they don't necessarily fall in love. It's just this sort of casual exchange a little bit. But he saw her performance. He was at the theater, and he saw her dance. And when he meets her, he says that she's the most beautiful thing that he's ever seen. Um, they part at that point, but then later on when she's at that cabin, the one that she's remembering all of this in, and the brilliant thing about Bergman with this film is how he straddles these two time periods, how he takes you, 
um, back in time and forward in time, and he's moving these time um, these time periods and going in between them quite often. You know, at times you're with 16-year-old Marie, and then at times you're with adult Marie. But he does it in a really seamless way. He does it through sort of, you know, just different ways, like the hair and the clothes. And I don't think you're ever confused about where you are in the story. But, um, so she's at that cabin, young, beautiful, in her bathing suit, singing to herself. She's free. And she goes fishing and she meets Henrik again. And so they just keep coming across each other and they start to form a bond and they hit it off. And Henrik is someone who's very lonely. He only has his dog. Um, his he He's never known his mother and his father doesn't want him around. His father just like, yeah, tries to get him to go out and he just doesn't want him around very much. Wants him out of his hair, really. Um, and so Marie has a tenderness towards him and she has she's lost her own mother. So she's really alone in a lot of ways, too. She has this aunt and uncle. Um, his name is Uncle Erland. Um, and they knew her mother. Um, but her Erlen, Uncle Erlen has like this romantic interest in Marie. He's not her biological uncle, obviously. Um, and he's very interested in her from the beginning and we can tell all of that. And it's really creepy and really sinister and gross. And Bergman makes that very clear that this guy is bad news, that he is really a, um, sinister presence in Marie's life. But he will actually, he will be a damaging influence on her once Henrik passes away. And um, the the landscape, I want to talk a moment about the landscape in this film. Because it's really stunning. It, this film is, is about nature, really. And about um, Marie and Henrik being together in nature. It's about the water and the trees and the rocks, and being outside, and about the two of them being together. It's really about the intensity of first love. I love this scene where they lay on the rocks, and they talk about how warm the rocks are, and um, she talks about how, um, she says how they're inside the same bubble, and she says, it's so beautiful I could burst break into pieces, disappear, perish. They're really in the throes of of this love that they feel for each other. And it's just this very intense feeling. You can tell um, what they feel for each other. And the landscape is, is, is part of that. It's just, it's just beautiful. The trees and the water and them together, and you can tell that Marie is just overwhelmed by her emotions and her feelings for Henrik, you know, that she's just bursting with life and love, and this is probably the time in her life when she feels most alive. You know, when I think back to the summers of my childhood, I actually think about them quite a bit, Um, 
I do feel most alive at that time because that's the before. That is before the trauma, before the loss, before the grief. And of course, as you're living it, you don't know how special it is. You don't know how beautiful it is. You don't know how temporary it is and that what's coming is going to be horrific. You don't know it and you don't see it coming. And you can never go back to that again. You can never go back to the before. You can never go back to who you were before. And that's something that I've struggled with in over the years. Is that I really can't be that girl again. I can't be that person ever again who doesn't know grief and loss. Who doesn't know this pain that is in me. And that eats away at me and that is slowly killing me and destroying me. Like I can't go back to being like ignorant of of these things I, I can't put it into words it's like the way I live now is so different than the way I lived then I mean some things are similar I've always struggled with depression and anxiety and mental illness I've always struggled with loneliness and disconnection but I'm talking about psychologically what it does to you to lose a person or several people at an early age how you live after that, how fear creates this home inside of you that you can't get rid of. It's just this fear in the pit of your stomach constantly of when is the next bad thing going to happen, like this dread that inhabits your body. And I can never get rid of it. It's like this low hum or something it's like always there this fear of like who am I going to lose next what next terrible thing is going to happen what am I going to lose next what's when is it going to happen and I just sit waiting for it and I'm terrified of it and I can't live you know because it consumes me I mean I try to control it I try to like not let it overpower me, you know, but it is always there gnawing away at me of like, what's the next loss? You know, what's going to happen next that will completely destroy me and break me because it just keeps happening over and over and over again. When's the next terrible thing going to happen to me? And I didn't used to think like that when I was 12 or 13. When I was that age, I had like hope for my life. <laughs> I, you know, all the things that I wanted to do, all the things I wanted to be. And look at me. <laughs> I didn't become any of them, I didn't do any of it. And I'm close to 30 years old and I don't know I don't know what I'm going to do and I don't know how to live and I don't know how to cope and I don't know how to survive in the world as it is 
and I don't know how to stop being afraid. And I don't know how to stop hurting so much. And all of it happened because my father died. (laughs) And I couldn't deal with it. And it took so much away from me. It took my youth and my innocence and my hope. And my belief that my life could actually be anything or matter in any way. It took away a sense of meaning or purpose because like Marie I've lost faith in that. And like Marie I've put up these walls and tried to protect myself from more pain. You know? I've done all that. I've done everything that Marie has done. And that's why I wanted to talk about the film because that's real for me. That I have put up these walls. That I have tried to keep the world away because it terrifies me. And the pain is just too much at times. And I have become hard and bitter and angry I have become all those things and I didn't want to be. I don't want to be that way. But, you know, when when the world's not kind to you and when life is not kind to you, it's really hard to... It's just really hard to cope with that or to live with it. So... I'm glad the film shows sort of that before and after of who Marie was, you know, because she's so full of life and bubbly. And she talks about how her days with Henrik during that summer were like days like pearls. I think that's how she describes it. They're just so happy together, running around and kissing and holding each other and, um... And then you see her in the abandoned cabin and she goes back to her old house and she sees Uncle Erland there or Erland um, and she finds out that he's the one that sent the diary to her. Um, So we do learn that. Um, She's always, I think, slipping in between those two worlds. I think that's what happens too is I'm like a profoundly nostalgic person. And I think it's natural that if you lose somebody at a young age or you go through something traumatic at a young age, you become intensely nostalgic for the time before that happened. So I listen to a lot of 90s music and I watch 90s films. And I don't know, like I I get really nostalgic about before my father died, any year before he died. You know, I get really nostalgic for that time in my life. Nostalgic for my own summers. Um, My mom and I just recently thought about something that happened one summer. And um, it was, it's such an intense memory that I still have of my dad. And she had remembered it too. And we just both cried about it. I mean, it's 12 years and it just doesn't go away. It doesn't disappear ever, that kind of grief. And 
so I remember summers with my dad. I remember us swimming and he was a really great swimmer. And, um, I, I just remember certain times, like we used to go to like a public pool and I was just thinking about that public pool the other day. Um, I have pictures, you know, of us on summer, you know, at, at summer places and we didn't really go on vacations. My family didn't have a lot of money when I was growing up, so I never went to Disney World. I never went to any kind of vacation places, but we would go to like the local public pool if if we could at times, and I don't think it was too expensive to get in it, and so I do have memories of like swimming with my dad and things like that, and so those are actually really beautiful memories for me, but so summertime, you know, when I think back on it, That was, those are good times, you know. Here in the U.S., you know, we get summers off of school. I know some countries have, like, year-round school and stuff like that. But, you know, we get the summers off. And so I think for a lot of kids here in the United States, summertime is a really, um, it's an intense time. And I think our memories of it as we get older are really intense as well. Um... This film is really playful. That's another thing I wanted to say about Bergman with this film is, like I said earlier, you know, people tend to think of him as this really heavy, serious, um, existential uh, director, and he certainly is. But this film has so many light moments, you know, with Marie and Henrik running around the little island and kissing and playing and laughing. And I love the scene where she draws this little doodle on the on the album sleeve and it comes to life like a cartoon. It's so playful and, and they're just so happy. But there are times when during these happy moments, Marie is really seized by dread where she can almost feel that something bad is going to happen and she starts to fear it. There's this one scene where she hears this owl and she gets very frightened and she wants Henrik to hold her and um and he does and it's like she can just feel it coming and then it it comes and it comes at the most ordinary moment it it comes in the midst of the happiness it comes when she doesn't even expect it to you know they still have 3 days left together before they have to part and he has to go back to university and she has to go back to, you know, dance and, and he's diving from the rocks and that's when it happens. And so apparently maybe he doesn't make it to the water or he hits the rocks and, um, he's injured very badly. And, um, Something that I didn't notice the first time I watched the film is when this scene happens, he's able to get himself out of the water or he's able to move his body and um, and he's on the rocks and he's bleeding and he says something about his back. And so we know he's really, he's injured very terribly. And Marie tries to help him up because I was also thinking as I saw it, like they are very remote. They are very rural where this happened. And I would imagine that it took quite a bit of effort to get him to a hospital or something like that. But as soon as she's helping him over the rocks, the the camera pans upwards to the sky. And there's just this huge cloud, 
It's like this one big mass of cloud hanging right above them. And it has covered the sun. And it's almost like this very heavily symbolic moment. Maybe too heavy handed, some people would say. I don't know. But to me, it was very appropriate to that moment. And it sort of indicated the indifference of nature. That here, here is this catastrophe happening. This trauma happening. Because Marie saw all of it happen, you know. She saw this with her own eyes. She was witness to this kind of um, horror of seeing this man that she loves um, get very badly injured. And, um, and then there's just that cloud hanging there. It's very portentous, I think. And it's just an indication, I think, that nature doesn't care. The universe doesn't care about your little tragedy. It's just, it's, it's like a symbol of that for me. Is that everything goes on even though you might have a really tragic thing happen to you. And even though they get him to the hospital, he does end up dying. And my favorite scene happens after he dies. And this is a really... Um, important scene um especially for murray and i wanted to talk about it in depth for a moment she goes i guess to some kind of dance thing and so she is still continuing with ballet but you can tell that she's very numb and that she's very sort of dead inside i guess is the way that you could describe it But this is the scene that came back to me. This was the lightning bolt where I said, I feel a really personal connection with this film. And this is why I want to talk about it. It's because of this scene when Marie is talking to her, to Uncle Erland. Or Erland. I think I'm saying it wrong. I apologize. Um, (laughs) um, But this is the scene. This is the scene that stayed with me, that resonated with me that still resonates with me is everything that Marie says in this scene. And um, so I'm going to quote it at length. And she says, everyone is alive. They run around in the streets. And here I am eating and drinking at the theater. We dance and fool around. And Henrik lies out there starting to rot. A moment earlier, we were laughing about everything. He lay in my arms. I kissed his lips that and then her and then uncle erland says that's life and she asks is there no meaning anywhere and he says no my child nothing means anything in the long run and then she goes on i don't believe god exists and if he does i hate him and i'll never stop hating him if he was standing in front of me i'd spit in his face i'll hate him as long as i live i won't forget I'll hate him till the day I die. And then Erland says to her, and this is really important. This is why he's such a damaging presence in her life. Um, is that This is what he says to her. And it's such a strange thing to say to somebody. Um, most people would not say this, but he does. And he says, there's only one thing you can do. Protect yourself. Build walls around yourself so the misery can't get to you. I'll help you. 
I'll help you build your wall. I'll teach you, Marie. So this is his advice to her, you know, not, I mean, most people would say, oh, even if, even as cliche as it is, oh, it'll be okay, or something like that. And he's like, no, you have to build up walls. You have to keep the world out. You have to isolate yourself, really. You have to protect yourself. And she believes him because she doesn't know what else to do to cope with what she's gone through. And so older Marie tells us, the wall grew around me. In the end, I wasn't just protected, but locked inside. In this way, I forgot Henrik. So she's talking about how she did build those walls up. And not only did she keep herself protected, she created a prison for herself. And she kept the world out. She kept everything out. Because when you build that wall up, you keep everything from getting in. So the pain can't get in. And the hurt and the sorrow can't get in. But also the joy and the possibility of connection. And and pleasure and um, all of it. That doesn't get in either. Everything gets locked out of those walls. Everything. And that's what's always resonated with me. Is that I know that I have those walls. I know that I don't let people get close to me. That I don't even try to get. I don't try to get close to other people. That I keep myself walled off. And isolated and alone. And I know I do that because I'm so terrified. I'm so terrified of the pain and the hurt and the abandonment and the betrayal and everything that I've been through with people throughout my life. Because when my father died, I didn't get a bunch of love and support. (laughs) You know, I got the complete opposite from my family. Um... And, the, and people that I knew. And so I just learned from a really early age that there was no place for me and that people didn't care about me. I've always felt worthless. I've always felt forgotten. I've always felt inferior and not good enough. And that's how people have made me feel about myself. And I just kept getting hurt by people and rejected by people. And I just decided that I can't do it anymore. And so, yeah, I have isolated myself and I have put walls up. But I think when you keep getting beat down and beat down, it's like, what else are you supposed to do? But at the same time, you know that when you close off those possibilities of connection, when you keep people out and you stop making an effort, you know, like I have, to really connect to people, that there is a sacrifice that comes with it, that you keep out the joy, you keep out those possibilities. And I'm well aware of it. I'm absolutely well aware of it. But I think sometimes when the world has hurt you and when you don't fit in this world, you don't know what else to do because you just keep getting hurt over and over and over again. 
And at some point, I think as a human being, you just hit your limit. That I can't keep reaching out. I can't keep trying when it just never works and it never happens. And you think someone, you think someone cares, you know, and this can happen online too. There's so many people recently that I've met online and that I, that I thought I had some kind of connection to, or I thought I knew them or I thought I could trust them. And then things happen to show me those people don't really care about me. And those people are not who they seem to be. And it's made me very, very wary of people and very distrustful of people, even online. When for me, online used to be an escape. You know, it used to be a place I could go to feel some kind of connection, to feel like maybe a sense of belonging. And in the last few months, I've completely lost that. Because several people have really hurt me and have really disappointed me. You know, there's some people like who have really disappointed me. So um, I've just receded. I've just withdrawn. And I've, I've just decided that I'm not going to interact with people. That I'm not going to do that anymore. And so I've really cut back how much I do interact with people. And um, because I just can't keep going through it. I can't keep trusting people who are not worthy of that trust. I can't keep giving my time and energy to people who are not worthy of it. You know, and who really don't care about me. Or who are fake and pretend to care when they don't. You know, who will talk to me or message me a few times and then completely stop, you know, and they don't care. I mean, I got to move on from it. You can only try so much where you reach out, you try to establish something and it's just not there. You can't force it. And then some people have just downright, you know, really shown their true colors. And, you know, people online are like people in real life. Yeah. It just is what it is. But I totally relate to Marie and I relate to her struggle in the world of like how to trust people and how to connect with other people. And it's just, how do you do that when there's a lot of hurt there? And for her, it's, you know, it's very connected to losing this person that she loved and not wanting to go through that again. And not wanting to hurt again. And needing to forget. <clears throat> and needing to forget Henrik. And there's another really great scene that I had actually totally forgotten about. I didn't even um, remember this one. And so rewatching it, I just wanted to talk about it for a moment. You know, later on when she's at rehearsal again. And, you know, she's gone to the cabin. She's been remembering Henrik. And... She's finally remembering him. You know, in that scene, she says, you know, she put up those walls and she kept people out and she forgot him, that it was really important to her to forget him because it's too painful to remember him. Well, on this day, and if you think about it, the whole film is really taking place over one day, uh, just about, um... And it's this day of, of memory, of her remembering this this boy, you know, this young man 
that she loved and that she lost and her not just remembering the pain but remembering the beauty of it you know remembering the kisses and the um the laughs and there's an adorable little poodle dog in this film too and he's always with Henrik um it's his dog and um remembering the dog and remembering when they were swimming together and and just remembering all their moments together and so when she had forgot Henrik she had forgotten that too she had kept herself from being able to feel those things um she had walled that off too but this is a very intense day for her and so after that rehearsal she's alone in the dressing room and then one another person from the ballet this man i think she calls him the magician at one time he can see right through her and he knows that she's had a day like a difficult day and he says you only see your life clearly once when all your protective walls have tumbled down you stand there naked and cold seeing yourself just the way you are only once at that moment you dare not either live or die i was like oh god again this is what i mean when i say that ingmar bergman tapped into something that he tapped into these emotions i mean these are very deep powerful emotions about grief and loss and the loss of our innocence and traumatic things that happen in our childhood that haunt us forever and that we can't get over but really i think in in this instance in this film that the only way Marie could move forward was not to forget Henrik. That was the problem. Is that she thought if she forgot him, then she could just forget the trauma. She could forget the pain. But doing that, you know, building up those walls actually kept her paralyzed. It kept her frozen in the past. It kept her frozen, I think, in her grief. And the only way that she could actually move on and and love again and destroy those walls around her that kept her from feeling and connecting, the only way that she could do that was to remember Henrik, to remember that love, to remember that summer. Because forgetting it was not working. Forgetting it was keeping her trapped and imprisoned imprisoned in those walls that she had built those walls that she had created so that she wouldn't feel the grief and she wouldn't feel the anguish and so actually that diary coming into her life i think shatters that wall around her it shatters the amnesia almost the forced amnesia that she had created and so now she has to actually remember. She actually has to look at it. She has to confront it. She has to accept it. That this happened to her. That she lost him. But at the same time, the answer to his death is not to wall herself off from the world and isolate herself. That is not the answer. 
the answer is to open herself up again to another person. And that's why I say that there's hope for Murray. That she gives Henrik's diary at the end of the film. She gives it to David, to her boyfriend. Because at one point they're talking, but they're arguing. He comes into the dressing room after that very intense interaction with the magician. Who talks about how when your walls come down, you can actually see... When your walls come down, you can actually see your life for what it is and see yourself for what you are. Um, and he even mentions, her, her boyfriend David does, that she won't let him in. She won't let her, she won't let him get close to her. That she keeps him at a distance. And so she gives him the diary. And this is actually a profound act of intimacy, I think. This is really probably the first act of intimacy she's ever done since the death of Henrik. She gives David the diary, Henrik's diary, which probably, I would think, has lots of entries about the love that her and Henrik felt for each other. And, you know, she gives him that diary so that he will know the relationship that she had with Henrik. So that he'll know the love that they felt for each other. And I actually think that's a really profound thing. Because what happens or can happen with grief is that all you can think about is the loss. All you can think about is their death. My father's death. And how do you get to the point where you can... Think about their life and think about who they were and the beautiful moments that you had with them. How can you think about those things without them being tainted by the death of the person? Because she had a beautiful relationship with Henrik. She was in love with him. He was her first love. He gave so much to her. She has so much because she knew him and because she loved him. And because he loved her. And how can you get to the point where that love, the memory of that love, cancels out the grief? Or becomes more of your focus or your focal point than the grief and the pain and the anguish? And I sometimes wonder if that's possible for me. Could I get to the point where having been loved and having had a great father and everything that gave to me, all the ways that that created me and nourished me and made me who I am, how can I make that the center of my life instead of the pain? And I don't know right now. I don't know how to do that. I don't know if I can do that. Because I know that I did what Marie did. I didn't forget my father. I could never forget my dad, ever. If anything, I think about him too much. But it's how did how did his death 
come to define everything instead of his life. How did that happen? Like, how did his death become the definition of me instead of his life? How could I make that switch, you know, or correct the imbalance to some extent? How could I do that? Because I think Marie goes through a process in this film where by remembering Henrik's life and by remembering the love that they had for each other, that I think she is able to live again. I really do. I think it brings her back to life because she is so different, especially after her talk with the magician as well where she wants to let David in and she wants to have a relationship with David and she wants them, she wants to love again. She realizes what an absence she's had in her life. How those walls imprisoned her and kept her from loving and that she became like Uncle Erland, you know, that she almost is becoming like him hardening herself, isolating herself. And I think David is a chance at happiness and love and connection and intimacy again. And that is what we're left with at the end of the film, is this idea that her and David will get closer, that she will love again. I think there is hope for her. Absolutely. I think that. And there's such a beautiful scene where her ballet premieres the next night. And David shows up and he's on the side watching her. And she goes up to him and she's smiling. And and then the camera just shows their shoes. And so you, you see David's like, you know, man shoes. And then you see her ballet shoes on the right And she goes up on point and you can tell that there's a happiness about her step and she's smiling. And so there is this sense that she will love again. She will live again. Finally, after 13 years of struggling with the trauma of Henrik's death. I mean, you know, can all that happen in one day? No, not really. I mean, but this is cinema. This is a movie. And so it compresses things and it's not totally realistic, but there's hope for Marie, you know, and maybe some of us who watch the film, maybe we'll feel a sense of hope that maybe we can be like Marie in some way. That what we've gone through in our childhoods, in our past, doesn't have to completely define us or it doesn't have to completely destroy us that maybe there is a way to live again there is a way to move forward by remembering better times that we had happier times that we had and remembering the love that we felt for another person even though those that person is gone um but that is it's a long process But this film made me think a lot about it. And I think this film, watching it this time and talking about it, I do feel like I've come to some revelation, sort of, about my own life and my own relationship to grief 
my own relationship to the past. How did I end up here? How did I get to this place? I wonder that a lot. Like, how did I get so alone and isolated and scared and disconnected? And I don't know if I know how to correct it or change it. I think maybe the this podcast is an attempt on my part to contribute something and to make some kind of connection in the world and to share something of myself with other people. This is, I think, a profound act of vulnerability and intimacy on my part to share these things in these episodes, to talk in this way to people that I will never know and never meet. And sometimes I wonder what the hell I am doing (laughs) and why I keep doing it. I don't know sometimes. Is it worth it? Is it not? I don't know. I don't always know. Um, But I'm just doing my best to try to to live and to connect and to share something with the world or to share something with other people and to open my heart, you know, but it's easier to do it when you're just holding a microphone. It's a lot harder to do it in everyday life when you've been really hurt by a lot of people. And of course, you don't want to let the people who have hurt you keep you from really connecting to other people. You don't want to let the abandonment or the betrayal or the indifference. <laughs> um, you don't want to let that keep you from really good things that could happen or really great people that you could meet. And I have really met some great people, you know, online. I really have. I don't want to let the bad apples or the bad experiences define that for me. But it wears on you after a while, I think. And I think Summer Interlude is looking at all of this. It's looking at human connection, human intimacy. It's looking at loss, the past, memory, how we keep ourselves tender in this world that is so brutal at times. I know all of you know what I'm talking about. It's hard to live it's hard to be alive it's hard to survive this world if you are sensitive or soft i mean this world will almost eat you alive right how do you do that but it's also looking at grief and loss the loss of innocence um the things that haunt us our childhoods you know and what happens to us and how that shapes us and how how do we overcome it do we ever overcome it does it always haunt us you know I guess it does maybe it never stops haunting us to some extent you know but you do your best to to cope with it you know and to try to live with it and so for me it's really a film about a woman facing her past and facing facing this loss and this pain and and coming to terms with it I think and being able to love again and open herself up again I mean we don't know for sure if that's what happens but it's implied you know 
that her relationship with David will be different. That maybe she's going to let him in and tell him about Henrik. And so, again, the act of remembering is what saves her. Is that reading the diary, but also sharing the diary with somebody else. And talking, because you know that means that she's going to have to talk about it. She's going to have to talk about Henrik. She's going to have to talk about that summer. She's going to have to talk about what happened. And so the act of remembering becomes an act of vulnerability that then can turn into connection and love and intimacy. And, And there's a possibility there of love. And I'm I'm happy for Marie that, that she gets that at the end of the film. I think that's really important. So this is just a beautiful film. It resonated with me, obviously, on many different levels. And I almost feel like this was therapeutic in a way. That I'm like working through issues through this Ingmar Bergman film. Um, and it seems to me at times like he was working through certain issues through his films. Um, But I think watching his films and thinking about the themes and the questions that they raise and and the things that they explore, it's it can really be revelatory for your own life and thinking about your own experiences and um, and how you how you deal with certain things or don't deal with them or how you think about things and it can it can really affect you and I feel really affected by this film like I I can't even um describe it but um this has been a really powerful episode for me to talk about these things to talk about Marie to talk about summer interlude this is not one of his most well-known films but I think it absolutely should be I think it should be more well-known and more appreciated and um I hope more people do end up seeing it and um it's very special and it's special to me and really personal for me so if you did watch the film and then listen to the episode or if the episode gets you interested in the film I think it's definitely worth your time and it's I think it's worth revisiting that it's the kind of film that I think it could hit you in in different ways at different ages that maybe if you watch it at the age of Marie when she's 16 15 or 16 it may not hit you the way it will when you're in your late 20s the way I am so I think it could hit a woman especially at different parts of her life because it's about a woman's life it's about two different times in her life and so and about how certain experiences change her and how she tries to come to terms with those things so a lot of richness in this film a lot to look at a lot to explore and I'm so glad I chose it even though it's sort of off the beaten path in terms of Bergman and not the most well-known of his films, just because a film isn't the most famous by a director doesn't mean it can't have things to offer us and to give us and to make us think about. And so I kind of like that about cinema and certain directors that it's not always their most famous films that can affect you in the deepest way. Sometimes it's these littler films or films earlier in their career when they're not as well known 
that can make the deepest impression on us. And this film just came out of the blue. I just, I happened to remember it. And I felt like something was pulling me towards it. There was like this magnetic thing happening where I thought, I need to talk about this film. There's something unfinished for me here. There's something that I need to revisit, that I need to explore again. And I'm so glad that I listened to that voice, that I listened to my intuition, because that is what this podcast continues to help me do. If you listen to earlier episodes, first of all, they're not the best uh, audio quality. I didn't have a lot of resources, um, but I appreciate those of you who have sort of become patrons who have helped me financially because that means I've been able to get better equipment and I've been able to make the podcast better. So the audio quality ain't the best at the beginning. But what is also different, I think, is my voice. Like literally my voice. Where at the beginning, I just wasn't as sure of myself. I wasn't as confident in my opinions or my thoughts. And the process of doing this podcast has really affected me in that way where I do feel like I have a voice. I do feel like I know myself better. I do feel like my judgment has gotten better, that I know what I think about things and that I'm able to stand by what I think and what I believe. And I'm able to speak it and to say it and to not be afraid to share what I think and what I feel. And so I think I am in the process of finding my voice, you know, and that I am more confident about my voice. I am more confident about what I think and I'm able to share it and I'm able to share it in a way that's clear and that is um, unapologetic. And so that's really important to me and that's really changed my life that I believe that maybe I have something to say that I have something worthwhile to share and that my thoughts matter. That's what it's about really is creating a space where I believe that I have something to contribute and that my thoughts matter because I haven't always felt that way in my life at all. I've never felt that way in my life that when I opened my mouth or when I said something that people listened or people cared or people wanted to hear what I had to say about something my opinion didn't matter. My thoughts didn't matter. I've always been invisible and marginalized and silenced in a lot of ways. But through this podcast, I'm able to have a voice and to say, this is what I think. And I stand by it. And I believe in it. And I'm confident to a certain extent. <laughs> I still have a lot of fears and doubts and uncertainties and insecurities. But I'm able to say this is what I think and this is what I feel and it matters, you know, and you can either listen or not. Not that many people listen and not that many people do care, but I'm grateful for the ones who do. So I've gone on long enough. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.